This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com/ageist, save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Element. L-M-N-T. My favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products. Welcome to episode 150 of the Super Age Podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on September the 6th, 2023. I am back in Park City, Utah at 6,800 feet, and I'm looking up at the mountains. The high ones are up, I don't know, I guess about 12,000 feet, and there is, guess what, snow up there. (laughs) So winter is coming. But big news around here this week was that I had knee surgery last week, so on Tuesday, and I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go. And you know, I have good reason to be concerned about these things is I've had my appendix removed. I've had my spleen removed. I've had two surgeries on my nose. I've had surgeries on my eyes. And universally, surgeons really downplay the recovery from what they do. So they sort of don't care. They do their thing and then they're done and they move on to the next person. So this time when I was told, oh, this will be fine, it's an orthoscopic clean out, which means over the course of time, my 64 years of walking around, I've had a couple of tears in the meniscus of my left knee and they needed to be trimmed. And I was told this would be just fine. Give it four to six weeks and you're going to be, you know, as good as new. Having had some experience with surgeons telling me this in the past, I was fully prepared for something much worse. And I wasn't quite sure how last week was going to go. You know, was I going to be on heavy pain meds? Am I going to be able to walk? Do I need crutches? Well, none of that happened. Ridiculously, they gave me a script for oxycodone, which I'm just going to give it back to them. I don't know what I'm going to do with this stuff. I did alternated ibuprofen and Tylenol, I think every three hours, and that was fine. And I walked out of the hospital, and I've been walking ever since. They did want me to stay really still for a couple of days, which was kind of hard. I just had to sort of lay on the sofa with my leg up. And oh, there's this magical thing they gave me. Oh my gosh, if you guys ever have surgery, you got to get one of these things. It's a box, and you plug it into the wall, and it's got these tubes that come out of it. And attached to the tubes is this sort of wraparound cuff thing that goes around the lower part of my thigh, my knee, and then the upper part of my calf muscle. And you Velcro this thing on, and then this thing has different modes to it. And you put it in cool mode, and what it'll do is it circulates cold water through the thing, 42-degree cold water, which you can leave on, which I did, like 20 hours a day. You don't have to worry about um, getting any frost damage to your leg because it's not cold enough, but it is cold enough to cause the, the inflammation to go down or not to happen in the first place. And then it has a pressure thing. So you tell it how much pressure you want on it. And it also really helps with the inflammation. And you don't, so the reason you don't want the inflammation is inflammation is part of the healing process, but you don't want so much that you start building up blood and fluids and all kinds of bad things are going to ha- may happen. You, you know, these deep vein thrombosis, you don't want that. You don't want scar tissue. So you want to keep this on. So the, the cooling thing they had me do for four days. And then the pressure thing I learned, don't do that at night. You won't sleep because this thing, it goes sort of on, off, on, off. And it's just, you're not getting any sleep. But I would do the pressure thing during the day. And then the cold thing pretty much every day, all day for those times. And when I leave the hospital and you've got this like mummy wrap, from the middle of my thigh all the way down to my toes. And so I had no idea what my knee looked like or what they had actually done to it. And I took it off on Saturday and like zero swelling in my knee. And I do have some pain in my knee, 
but not in the joint itself. Like the joint feels really good. What hurts is they had to, you know, it's arthroscopic surgery. So they have to punch some holes through your skin to go in there and put their instruments and do their thing. So I got these holes in the skin around my knee. And, and so that hurts. But other than that, I'm pretty optimistic about the healing on this. I've been in touch with Dr. Scott Schur, who we've had on the podcast a few times. I think we've got him coming up again, I think later in the month, who deals a lot with these sort of recovery modalities. And I spoke to him for about an hour before I had the surgery, and he gave me all kinds of things to do. And so today, actually five days a week for two weeks, I'm in a hyperbaric oxygen therapy tank, which is kind of a pain in the butt because once you go in there, you're just like in there for an hour and a half. It's like this tent. It's like a really small tent and it's pressurized and you breathe concentrated oxygen. And so this should really help with the, with the healing, but it's really time consuming. <laughs> um, and there's some other stuff. So I'll let you know as we go forward what I think is working and what's not. But all in all, the knee feels pretty good. I can't pull it all the way back. It doesn't have full range of motion yet, but I think that really has to do with the wounds in my skin. PT starts this week, yay! And I get a PT evaluation and start with my PT trainer to get everything back together here. I mean, the big thing here is because I've had this sort of, you know, like 10-year ongoing issue with my left leg, the strength in my left thigh is about, you know, I tested in the gym, it's about 15% less than the one in my right leg. So I'm looking forward to get the needles equalized. And of course, if I wasn't using my left leg as much, it means I was using my right leg too much. And that's not good because you just sort of wear things out there and you could end up surgery with that. So <laughs> we don't want that. This week on the show, we've got Dr. Mike Wagner. And we've got Mike on because Mike is a guy who's really interested in a lot of things. He's a very bright guy, Stanford Medical School, trained as an anesthesiologist. And he spends a lot of his time reading research papers and PubMed and, and things that are out there in the wellness longevity space. But because he's an anesthesiologist, he's not really in the space. And one of the things I like about that is, as we discuss a lot in my conversation with him, he doesn't really have a dog in the fight. Like he doesn't really have an agenda. And a lot of people that are in the space do have a certain point of view on things that may be advantageous to either their product or their ego or something. But Mike's not involved in any of it. So I think he's he's a really interesting guy. And I think, you know, we have some discussions here about some of the things, some of the modalities that he's doing, some of the things he feels are important to him. And the all important distinction between clinicians, people who are actually dealing with patients, and researchers who may have some theories about how to guide clinicians, but often sort of speak with an authority that mm, maybe they shouldn't really have. <laughs> and how clinicians tend to be much more cautious about things. So we're going to get into this really interesting conversation with Dr. Mike Wagner in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested, highly pure urolithin A postbiotic. There have been over 300 published scientific studies on urolithin A, including human-completed and ongoing clinical trials involving over 900 participants. The results are impressive. By energizing cells, MitoPure is revolutionizing cellular aging. Urolithin A is the only known substance clinically proven to trigger a crucial recycling process within our cells called mitophagy. I've been using MitoPure for several months. The members of our scientific board and their families use it, and many of our friends use it because we have read the science and we can feel the difference. This is a product I'm going to be taking for as long as I possibly can. Receive 10% off your first purchase at TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist. Use the code Ageist at checkout. Today's show is also brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. One of the great findings that I learned last year was the importance of electrolytes in my water, especially sodium. Of course, if you have hypertension or you're pre-hypertensive, this is something you want to pay attention to. But for most of us, we're probably lacking electrolytes. And my favorite one is Element. And guess what? They just launched grapefruit. I'm actually drinking a Element grapefruit right now. And that's awesome. Go to drinkelement.com slice Aegis, get a free eight-serving sample pack. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Aegis and get a free 
eight-serving sample pack with your next purchase. Just a quick reminder that after my conversation coming up with the very bright Dr. Mike Wagner, we're going to do Just Try This, that little fortune cookie tidbit that may help you live a little happier, maybe a little longer, and maybe a little healthier. So stay tuned after my conversation with Dr. Mike Wagner. Let's give Mike a call right now. Hey, Mike, how are you doing today? Good, David. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Um, thanks for taking the time to join me on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Nice to finally meet you. I've heard a lot about you. I know you had Jen on a few few this weeks is, ago. This is slander, Mike. We have <laughs> lawyers that deal with that stuff. <laughs> You're a practicing anesthesiologist. Is that, Correct. Is that right? Yep. And for people who don't know, what do you do? What does an anesthesiologist do? So, I mean, classically, I think most people associate an anesthesiologist as the, the man or woman who puts you to sleep for surgery. The field has actually grown into a lot of other things. Um, I have... I had two areas of subspecialty, cardiac anesthesia, which I stopped doing about six years ago, and acute pain medicine. So helping to manage pain around the time of surgery. So before surgery, during and after. So we do things like nerve blocks, and it's kind of an area of subspecialization with anesthesia. Um, so those are kind of my two sub areas. Like I said, I don't practice cardiac anesthesia anymore. But classically, yeah, I think most people associate with anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist, the person who kind of puts you to sleep. We monitor you while you're asleep. So your heart rate, blood pressure, your ventilation, oxygenation, these kind of things, um, and then make adjustments as necessary. And, and, you know, it depends on the surgery. We have very straightforward surgeries. Like you were telling me, you're having a knee scope. That's pretty straightforward. And you have bigger surgeries where there could be lots of blood loss and fluid shifts and those kind of things. So, yeah, it's basically what we do. And it's like I said, it's a growing field and a lot of areas of subspecialization as well. When I've had MDs on this show, I'm going to say 90% of them were anesthesiologists. Oh, really? Why that is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Once in a while, I'll have an orthopedist or a cardiac person, but. There's something about the field of anesthesia that seems to bring in people who are very curious about other things. Yeah, you know, I think classically the people who go into it have an interest in physiology and pharmacology. That's kind of the typical statement of people applying to the field. And it's actually, it's interesting. I just got a newsletter the other day. The field itself is becoming a lot more competitive for people when you're trying to match for your residency, which is where you train. It's actually becoming increasingly competitive. So more and more people are going into the field. That's interesting. I heard that the the field really took a took a hit from COVID. Temporarily, I think, and it depends on what kind of practice you are in. Certainly, people in private practice, um, you know, it's more eat what you kill kind of mentality. The when operate, you know, elective surgery especially just stopped happening, but it wasn't for a very long period of time. So mm. I think most people recovered pretty quickly. I'm thinking of the people who were like working the ventilators. Oh, you mean like as far as taking care of the COVID patients? Yeah, yeah. Some people did get detailed to ICU because we were basically, that's our wheelhouse as an anesthesiologist. You know, you're kind of a one person ICU is yeah. what you're dealing with. So managing people on ventilators, on um, medications to keep your blood pressure up, what we call vasoactive medications. That's kind of something we're very comfortable with. So, yeah, there were people who were detailed to to the ICU to help care for the patients, for sure. Oh, well, wait, wait. There's one thing I want to ask you, still in the realm of anesthesia. So I'm getting my knee done. So that's general anesthesia. So I get knocked out. Sure. Um, and uh, if I were to request a drug to knock me out, um, mm -hmm. what do I want? <laughs> well, most people get a standard cocktail. You don't actually have to have general anesthesia. Some people, you could do spinal anesthesia. Most people don't do that at an outpatient center, though. Um, but, you know, the classic, most people get Versed, so, you know, known as midazolam. So it's like a oral, a Valium, but IV that kind of just takes the edge off. And most people don't remember anything. Um, and then the classic kind of induction routine with medication is then fentanyl. So ah. most people use fentanyl all the time. Um, that kind of just helps get you a little deeper. And then propofol. Um, and then you're kind of off to sleep. They'll probably, for you, you'll probably get what's called an LMA. So they probably won't even end up putting a breathing tube in you. Um, and you just kind of breathe on your own, but propofol is a great drug. I mean, people love that. You feel great when you wake up from propofol. So I think, you know, the drugs you'll get for that are all pretty good. I don't think you'd have to worry too much. <laughs> I mean, I think propofol, that was the Michael Jackson 
drug, right? Yeah. You know, and it's funny, we use it everybody and pretty much every single case gets purple. So it's a great drug. It's fast on, fast off and uh, people feel good on it. It's generally kind of a euphoric feeling drug when people get it. Ooh, Um, I like euphoria. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's interesting because now I think we're a lot more involved in out of OR procedures. So like people have in colonoscopies and things like that. The field has really expanded because more people want anesthesia involvement in that. And yeah. so we generally are the only people that are allowed to give propofol in a lot of hospitals. And so mm. it's a much more pleasant experience than just having sedation. Okay. Well, yeah. So yeah, I think you'll, I think you'll be fine. I mean, if you, you want to remember what fentanyl feels like, you could ask not to get Versed, but <laughs> I, I think, I think you'll be in good hands. Okay, good. Yeah. I always, I've only been under, I don't know, maybe four or five times. And yeah. whenever they're about to like put me under, I, mm-hmm. I, just, I always ask them, what am I getting? They, they tell me. And of course, by the time I wake up, I don't remember any of it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Most people don't. Like I said, if you get the Versed beforehand, you probably won't even remember going. You think you will, but you won't remember even going back to the operating room. Right. Wow. Yeah. You have an interest, as a lot of us do, in maybe living longer, but living healthier longer. Sure. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the things that you're looking at that perhaps you're using on yourself or that you find promising or what you're seeing out there. Because one of the things I like about you, Mike, is you're, I think, as I said earlier, like you don't have a dog in the fight. And a a, a lot of the people that I have on the show, I mean, God bless them. They're all really great at what they do, but Mm -hmm. they tend to either from a clinical or an academic point of view, they have a thing and you don't have a thing. So I'm really curious what you're seeing out there. What's exciting to you? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, the field has really grown. And I, I think fortunately and unfortunately with social media and the ubiquity of all this information, it gets more and more confusing, right? Because like yeah. you said, you have people who kind of have a dog in the fight and they strongly believe in this diet or this supplement or, and it's hard to keep track of everything. And there's not a lot of evidence, unfortunately for, you know, when it comes to health span and longevity, we're probably never going to have great randomized placebo-controlled studies because it's simply nobody's going to pay for that. And they take way too long to, you know, start people in 50 and then follow them for 40 or 50 years to see who lives longer. That that would be hard. Um, so I kind of, you know, as far as, you know, what are the things that are likely to kill you when you get older, really, right? And so I look at heart disease as being a big one. So, you know, we were talking about earlier, I'm on a statin and I think it's interesting to me that in the general population, there's so many people I meet who are so hesitant to start a, a statin, even though the evidence has been out for decades and the benefit is so strong. You know, like I said earlier, you can only get so far with diet and exercise. And the reality is, if you can drive your LDL or a, a better marker would be an, an ApoB um, down below 70, your likelihood of getting heart disease is pushed back decades. Um, and so there's great evidence for that. So I, you know, I, I started a statin when I was 35, I'm 49 now, just because I had a strong family history of heart disease. And that was most likely going to be the thing that would, would kill me in, in later in life. Um, and then, you know, Peter Atia talks a lot about this, you know, heart disease, neurodegenerative and cancer are the big three, right. That are likely, going to cause harm later in life. So, you know, I try to look at where's there good evidence for other things. I think, unfortunately, there's a a slew of supplements out there and it's hard to parse what to take. So I try to look at where's there good evidence of little harm and strong benefit. So I take, you know, things like vitamin D supplement. I take a coenzyme Q10 simply because um, I'm on a statin and there's evidence that that can be depleted with statin. and outside of that, I don't take a whole lot, believe it or not. Um, I think, you know, I go back to what are the major players here? What's going to, you know, get you 90% of the way there? And that's exercise. You know, the best drug you can you have is exercise. And so I try to stay fit with both aerobic and strength resistance training because I think both are important. You know, as you get older, one of the major causes of death is falling, certainly over the age of 65. So maintaining strength, balance, doing activities like Nordic skiing, alpine skiing, mountain biking, these kind of things. Um, uh, 
I think diet, once again, you know, diet is probably the biggest area of confusion amongst people simply because there is, you know, you have people who swear and they watch game changers and they say, you know, you have to be vegan. Right. And that's not strong evidence for being vegan. That's not even really evidence. Um, you know, there's people who are paleo, gluten-free, you know, all the no dairy, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I look at it and say, I'm not on a special diet. I try to stay away from processed foods, foods that are, you know, high sugar content, these kind of things. I don't eliminate anything. I think that's just too hard. You got to live your life. And so, um, so exercise, diet, sleep, good quality sleep. You know, there's a, a, a lot of like uh, Matt Walker out there and people like that who talk about how you can create a good environment for sleep. Um, and then, I, like I said, I take a few supplements um, and, and that's really it. So I try to take a, a practical approach and still want to enjoy my life. Um, and, you know, I still like to go drink beer and play golf. And so, you know, I'm still going to do that a couple of times a month. And even though I know it's probably not the best for my health, um, sometimes needed. I want to back up to the statin thing. Yeah. Because this is something I find really puzzling mm -hmm. that, you know, we mentioned Ozempic earlier that right. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but my, my personal feeling is for people that are morbidly obese, these sort of drugs are life-saving. Yeah. However, <laughs> if you want to lose 10 pounds to get in a bikini, the downsides are just tremendous. Right. People I've talked to, there seems to be much more acceptance about Ozempic than statins which have mm. decades yeah, of yeah. safety and, and there's like legions of statin haters. Help me to understand the statin hater. I don't get it. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier, where when you have, you know, this, this plethora of information out there and all these people on Twitter and Instagram, you're going to get mm. people who, you know, they, that's how they sell books. Right? right. And they, you know, they back themselves into this corner of statins are bad and they come up with, you know, all these reasons why that really don't pan out. And so I try to look at, you know, um, I look at people like Tom Dayspring or somebody like that, who's a lipidologist and has really good evidence, doesn't have necessarily a dog in a fight. He's not making money. Nobody's making money off statins. Um, and so, yeah, with, you know, drugs like Ozempic, you know, the problems like we were talking about earlier, you know, even in the anesthesia world, this is a drug where it puts you at a little higher risk because, you don't empty your stomach. And so people can come in and say, I haven't eaten in 14 hours and still have a fair amount of food in their stomach. And if that goes up into the lungs, what we call aspiration, that can, that can kill you. Um, so, and, and you look at the side effects of Ozempic, you know, people feel nauseated, they feel distended, diarrhea, all these kinds of, sounds awful. But once again, like you said, I think for people who are morbidly obese and, and you know, they just have not been able to lose weight. I think it's a reasonable thing for the people who want to lose five or 10 pounds. And I know plenty of people or heard of plenty of people who are doing this and going on that drug. Um, whereas with statins, you just have decades of evidence of it, of it working really well to drive your LDL down. And that's going to be the, the main cause of atherosclerosis. Um, so yeah, it puzzles me as well. Similar to the sort of the diet stuff you sort of enter the religious where just one needs to suspend belief in facts and just like, okay, <laughs> whatever you think. Right. Yeah. And if you look at it, I mean, you can look at meta analysis of, you know, hundreds of different randomized placebo control, really well done studies. And there's just a direct correlation. The lower you get your LDL, the less you are to have an, uh, a cardiac event, you know, what we call MACE or a major adverse cardiac event. So the lower you go, the better. Um, and there's also really good evidence in, if you look at people with familial hypercholesterolemia, where they're born with a genetic defect in the LDL receptor, you know, statins are lifesavers. The, those people, depending on if they're homo or heterozygote, um, you know, they'll have events in adolescence, right? Without statins or, or more aggressive drugs. Um, and, and I don't know what more evidence people need, but I mean, you know, hey, and I'm getting to the age now where I've heard, I've had two or three people, not close friends, but in the community or other places who have dropped dead from a cardiac event. And, you know, it's, I think people are so worried about Alzheimer's and cancer and I get it, but heart disease is still the number one killer, which is crazy. You know, those are the big, well, there are four. There's, there's cardiac, there's cancer, there's brain neurological stuff. And then there's also accidents. I think accidents yeah. is like number four. 
I don't know about you, Mike. I feel the most dangerous thing I do in any given day is I get in yeah. my car. Like it's right. not ski racing. It's not it's other stuff. Like I'm not going right. to die doing that. I might break a leg, but a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I work down in Salt Lake. So it's like I'm doing that commute quite a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and it enters my mind. I mean, as my kids get a little bit, they're not quite driving age yet, but I think about driving down the 80 with those semis. And then I also think about, you know, having taken care of people who are long haul truckers and knowing what their baseline health is. It's a little scary to think about making that drive. And, and to me, that's the probably the number one risk in my life is making that drive up and down. The right. Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. I know people, they ask me like, oh, what kind of car should I get? I don't care what color your car is. I don't yeah. care how fast your car is. Any of that. I care about right. one thing. Somebody goes across a lane with an SUV and hits you head on. What happens? This is the only right. thing I care about. <laughs> yeah. No, right? for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the other things. So rapamycin. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what's the upside to rapa? Yeah. You know, so it's something I actually started taking and I felt, I felt weird about it. Right. Cause I felt like I was going down this rabbit hole of like, what am I doing here? But the more I read, and I'm not, as you can tell, I don't take a ton of supplements. I think that's a field where, you know, once again, you have to find what works for you. I tend to be somebody where I take something and it just, I don't feel a difference. You know, and you read about people taking this, maybe some of it's placebo effect. I don't know where they take a certain supplement and it's like, oh, I slept so better. I have so much more energy or I'm, I think more clearly. None of that's really worked for me. So rapamycin, you know, I started, I looked at, um, if you ever, I don't know if people have delved into the ITP or the interventions testing program studies where they will test molecules on a mouse model and they do it at three different labs simultaneously. And that was one when you look at it and most of the molecules they've tested don't work. Things like metformin, stuff like that. And it's a mouse model, so it's not human, but generally it's a good place to start. And rapamycin just shows a huge benefit in both male and female mice. If you look at it, it's shown a benefit in, it's done in a few human trials. So it was done in Australia and New Zealand and people were getting the influenza vaccine. Mm. And they had a much more robust response to the vaccine, less likely to get influenza. So it was very immunomodulating in a good way. And more importantly, what they've shown is just no side effects. So I think it got this reputation, certainly, you know, when I was training as it's a drug given to people who have kidney transplants as an immunosuppressant, but that's in a dose that's dosed daily. So you take it every day and it has immunosuppressant, but when you're given once weekly or once every 10 days, a little higher dose, it actually has the opposite effect. It actually is an immunomodulator and enhances your immune system. And it's shown, like once again, across four different animal species to prolong life. So increase lifespan and health span as well. So I, once again, it was one of those things where I could never find any evidence of it causing harm, which was the most important thing. And every study I've looked at, it's shown a benefit and a, a really strong benefit compared to everything else that's out there. The hard part with it, so I, I've been on it for about a year. Um, is you really, you don't feel any different, right? I, I couldn't, the one thing, actually, I've been on it longer than that. I started it in 21, uh, December of 2021. And it was interesting with COVID, everybody in my family got COVID. And this, who knows, right? This is just anecdotal, <laughs> but I never got it. I never got sick. Um, and I haven't, I've been on it for about, I guess, two years. I've never gotten sick. And so it's an interesting side note because everybody in my family, they're all healthy, but I, I didn't get it. So who knows, right? So with something like that, how do you determine dosage and frequency? Yeah, it's kind of all over the map. Um, most people that I've read about in the studies and even in the ITP stuff, it's once a week. Some people do once every 10 days, but most are doing once a week. And the idea is you get this kind of two to three days of the mTOR one inhibition, um, but then you allow some time for that to recover. Um, and you're you're not doing a high enough dose to inhibit mTOR two. Um, and so I do six milligrams. And that seems to be about, you know, once again, I've I've read a lot of different studies. People are anywhere from five to eight to ten, somewhere around there. Um, and so I kind of settled somewhere in the middle. 
And I haven't had, you know, some people say you can get aphthous ulcers and things like that, but I have not gotten any of those. And so, you know, the hard part about all this, as you all know, is there's no biomarker, right? So it's hard to know what to follow. And, and the, the, the problem I have with this is I've had no side effects. I've tolerated it just fine. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. The one side effect, like we were talking about earlier, is my LDL went up, which is known to happen. So I've kind of adjusted my dose and my statin to see where that will go. But that is one thing I have noticed is my LDL went up. And, and that's been known to happen with rapamycin. Um, is how long do I continue this for? That That's the question in the back of my mind. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't. But for now, I'll keep going. But I, I, I don't know how to address that later on. I have heard, this is not medical advice. This is just um, yeah. us having a conversation. So like, <laughs> don't do anything we're talking about here without checking with your doctor. I mean, I've heard with RAPA anywhere I know, it's so weird we're even talking about this. Like, well, I know a guy. It's It seems so n- not based in science, yeah. but I know some people are three milligrams once a week. And mm-hmm. I interviewed someone a little while back and he does 12 milligrams every two weeks because he really wants the spike effect. Yeah. And then I've also, since it's an immunosuppressant, I'm guessing like if you feel like a cold coming on or something, you probably shouldn't take it that week. Yeah, I probably wouldn't. If I was feeling like I was sick, I would probably skip it that week. Um, But, you know, in the dose we're talking about, it seems to enhance the immune system. So I don't know. Hmm. Um, Yeah, no. And this is the thing. It's like it's once again, it's all over the place. And we don't even know. Do you take it? I've actually tried to see, do I should I take it with food or without? And even that people have looked at area under the curve and what's your, and some people are saying, well, you get a higher spike, but less, it doesn't last as long as far as your blood levels versus if you take it with food, it's not as high of a peak, but it lasts longer. Maybe that's better. We don't know. Um, so I kind of sometimes try to alternate it, you know, take it on an empty stomach, sometimes take it with some food, others, but even when you look at all these supplements that are out there, and this is one of my gripes, you know, if something works for you, great, but it's just a huge unregulated industry. And we don't know on some of this, like, do you take it with food? What type of food, you know, how often, what time of day, what, you know, what are the interactions with other things you're taking? And and that's the hard part. And, you know, if you took all these supplements that people are recommending, you would, you'd be on 50 supplements a day. I mean, it's a little bit crazy. Yeah. With the rapid, did you notice, any effect on your blood glucose or it was just the lipids? Just the lipids. You know, I get an A1C, which is a reasonable estimator of what your average is. And it's been pretty steady. It didn't really change at all. Hmm. Yeah. And then if we look at, say, some of the other, so we have like the big, we'll call them the big four. So cardiac stuff, the statins seem like a good idea. Anything that we can do to keep, I'm not a doctor, but my personal view on this is that any amount of accumulation, you know, it's like an interest-bearing bank account. It's just going to continue yeah. to accumulate in in your arteries, and you're not getting it out. So, you know, I went to see my GP here, and yeah. I had a CT scan. Yeah, and it was a two. I don't know, my LDL was like ninety or something, and he was like, "Oh, you're fine. You're, you're statin." But I said, "But I said, like, listen, like, <laughs> I don't want two to go to three because I can't bring right. three back to two. Right. So." Well, and I think that's the new thinking, right? I, I When you look at the cardiac risk calculator, it's basically in a 10-year increment, yeah. right? Where when you think about it, we're not really worried about living another 10 years. You want to live another 30 or 40 years or something right. like that, right? And if you look at atherosclerosis, it starts in adolescence. You know, yeah. you look at the people who have done autopsies on people who were killed in trauma or accidents or in over in military stuff. Um, and there's already buildup of fatty streaks and all these kind of things. So like you said, why not treat it aggressive and treat it early um, and not let this progress. So instead of developing significant coronary disease in your sixties, you're pushing that back to your nineties yeah. or something like that. And so I don't see a downside into treating it really aggressive and really early. And, you know, some of that, like I said, I did cardiac anesthesia and seeing what happens in that operating room when you have bypass surgery or having to have valves replaced. And, you know, you definitely want to stay off the table. Right. Um, And so, yeah, treating it really aggressive and really early 
I think you could prevent a lot of these um, cardiac events. And then when you, like I said, when you do the risk calculator, unfortunately, the, the most heavily weighted item in that is age. So if you took a 40-year-old who's kind of a train wreck and they have poorly controlled LDL, they may even smoke, hypertensive, it's not even going to trigger treatment because you have to be over, and I don't know exactly what it is, but eight or 9% risk. And it won't be there because they're too young, although they're already developing heart disease. That's crazy to me. I just don't. I don't understand that. And I think that mode of thinking is changing, but things uh, are change slowly. Right. And and same thing, you know, I have a a great internist, but it's just, you know, some of it is there's not a lot of emphasis in primary care in this country and um, the time thing, you know, it's, it's um, a lot of these people are, it's all about, you know, they're getting bought out by private equity groups and it's all about returning money to the shareholders and being more efficient and seeing more throughput and not necessarily about quality. And, and I think that's one of the downsides. Let's go to the next biggie, cancer. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one that scares most people because everybody has a story of, you know, some seemingly healthy person who it comes out of the blue. I think, you know, what can you do? I think one, screenings that are appropriate. So they've reduced the colonoscopy screening age to 45, which I think is reasonable. But once again, it's amazing to me how many people won't get it done. Um, so for certain cancers like that, I think there's pretty good screening things. I think you have to have common sense. Don't smoke, drink in moderation or less. Um, and then I think it goes back to the things that are good for your heart and good for your brain, you know, maintain exercise, um, adequate sleep, managing stress, reasonable diet, um, not being overweight. We know that obesity is a driver for several types of cancers. Um, and I think that's the best you can do. I, you know, sometimes people do have bad luck, but I think if you're exercising, eating relatively well, not smoking, moderate or less drinking, um, getting, trying to get adequate sleep, I think, and getting your screenings when appropriate, I think that's the best you can do. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, I mean, and once again, I think people take supplements and do all these other kind of things. I don't know how much that adds. Um, but you know, that's how I look at it. It's like, if you're controlling what you can control, like, I think, you know, you, you greatly lower your risk. It doesn't make it zero, but it becomes more in your favor. I had Mike Roizen on a couple of weeks ago, who's the mm-hmm. um, chief wellness officer at the Cleveland Clinic. And we were yeah. talking about protein. I mean, I asked Mike, I said, like, you know, everybody's talking about a gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. Yeah. So I weigh 168 pounds. That is just so like, oh my God. So hard. Yeah. It's uh, so hard to eat that much protein. And what is that doing to me? And he, Mike's a pretty level-headed guy. And he said, well, yeah, but you kind of need to do that. But I said, what's the downside of that? And he says, well, you know, all that protein, um, other things grow with protein too, as in cancer. So what he does is he goes five days a month on um, Walter Longo's program of, it's like 750 calories. This is basically tomato soup he eats for five days to cause autophagy, clean out all the misfolded Mm -hmm. proteins and 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 hopefully that sort of balances things out. I don't really like either one of those schemes of like that much yeah. protein or starving myself for five days. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I, I mean, the protein thing has been kind of the new trend as well, saying you need these massive amounts, what to me are massive amounts, because I'm the same yeah. way, 180 pounds, 180 grams of protein a day is really, really hard. I mean, you have to supplement, right? Um, and I'll be honest, I've tried to get that amount in and I don't feel great. I, it, I feel like I'm bloated. I, yeah. And I lift weights and things like that. And I just, I didn't like that feeling. Um, you know, the intermittent fasting, you know, whether that, you know, it's kind of the mTORC thing. Once again, yeah. are you kind mm-hmm. of doing some house cleaning inhibiting mTORC one in that cellular growth? I kind of feel for me, maybe I'm cheating it with rapamycin, right? Um, Cause that's kind of doing the same thing without having to go through the agony of fasting, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I, things I enjoy food too much to to go even a week with eating just tomato soup. And once again, we don't. It's a reasonable theory, but we don't have great evidence that's necessarily true. Um, and so, like I said, I think maybe the rapamycin helps me there. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not sure. I think I I read an analysis once on caloric restriction, 
Mm-hmm. And the sort of more primitive the species, the better it works. Yeast, worms, okay. And as soon as you move mice, well, yeah, okay. Dogs, less well. <laughs> and it's you sort of yeah. the higher the evolved organism, the less well it works. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you look at this big study that came out, and I don't know if you've ever talked about this on the show, the Wisconsin study, which looked at rhesus monkeys, which is interesting because they share about like 93% of our DNA, where a mouse is like 40 or something like that. So they basically took one group and restricted them by 30%. The other group was allowed to eat ad libitum, just feed on whatever they wanted. And the headliner was, well, the the group that was fed 30% less lived longer, significantly longer. What was interesting, there was a parallel study done at the NIA, National Institute of Aging, where they took the same study, but in, and they found no difference. The difference, and this is kind of the take-home point for me with diet, was the ones in the Wisconsin study that the ones that were calorically restricted lived longer were fed a horrible diet. It was the McDonald's of diets, right? That were fed. It was high fructose. It was nothing close to what they would eat in the wild, right? So it makes sense. You eat less of really bad food, you're probably going to live longer. In the NIA study, they were fed a healthy diet, a more wild type diet. And what they found is that further restricting calories when you're eating a, a good diet didn't make any difference in aging. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And that's been my kind of take home with caloric. If you're eating a good diet and not eating a bunch of junk, is restricting the calories and being kind of miserable, is it worth it? I don't know. For me, no. But maybe for some people, they can tolerate it. It's a real personal choice. We had Brian Johnson on here and like Brian's. Yeah, I've heard about that guy. Yeah. I love Brian, but I mean, he's an N of one. Um, yeah. Other people can't do that. I've had other people on who are, they've really transformed their bodies, very careful about what they eat and, their, and the counting their macros and their calories. And for them, it's, this is a uh, relaxing, like it, it makes sense to them. For other people yeah. though, I think I did it once for like two weeks and was like, oh my God, this is a bother. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this. no, yeah. And I think if you have the, you know, theoretically, if you take somebody like Brian Johnson and, and you have the energy and the time and the money and the resources, yeah, I'm sure you are probably going to add years to your life. But for me, who I wouldn't want to live that way. It just wouldn't be worth it to me. And I think you have to be able to live what what you enjoy now and live for the now a little bit too. And we all want to age um, gracefully for sure and have as prolong our health span as best as possible. But I think you have to be reasonable about it as well. Um, I mean, the experiments like that are fascinating to me, but there's just no way. Yeah. I like where he's coming from. I like his point of view. I like why he's doing this. I like what mm-hmm. he's trying to teach us. And I'm glad he's doing it because I don't want to do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but you know, it's one of those things too, that you can do all these things. And like you said, you get hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. Right. You, you're driving down. There are some things that are uncontrollable. It doesn't mean you want to just say, screw it. I'm going to eat McDonald's every day and, and see what happens. But at the same time, as I think it has to be that balance. Sometimes there's things unpredictable. You can do everything right and still get cancer. You can still get hit by a car or something like that. Um, and you want to try to lower that risk for sure, as best you can within reason, but it's trying to find that balance that works. Like you said, you're an N of one, what works for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in everything. There's people who bought an exercise and their idea of fun is, you know, running ultra marathons, mm-hmm. uh, which you could argue may actually is probably not great for lifespan, but you know, that's not me. I, I can go out and run. I, I say that it's lacking a little bit because we have a 50 K trail run this Saturday, but that's not my normal. Um, you know, I'll go out and run five or seven miles or go, you know, mountain biking or, or do whatever. And and that's enjoyable for me and staying active, staying fit. And that's probably perfectly fine for other people. It might be a brisk walk or whatever, but um, I think you have to do what works for you. Yeah, I think that's right. My feeling on this, Mike, is you sort of need to meet people where they're at. Understanding that, you know, I'm pretty regimented in my fitness exercise thing. I like metrics. I do like an hour, two hours a day is I have this sort of thing that I do, but, yeah. but I really love it. Like I just get tremendous enjoyment out of maximizing what my body can do, but <clears throat> that's me. And I think for a lot of other people, it's like, okay, maybe just try and walk a little further today. 
Yeah. Um, and I think you have to fit, see what fits in your schedule. I know like I get up most mornings I'm working. It's really early. So you read these people like Andrew Huberman who have, have really taken off, who has a lot of protocols and people love that, right? They mm-hmm. really love being in these protocols. Tell me exactly what to do when right. you do it. Much. That's for me, doesn't work very well. Um, but, you know, getting up and like getting early morning sunlight, but, you know, I leave for work at 6 a.m. So starting basically in a couple of weeks, that's not possible. Right. And then I'm inside where it's fluorescent and sunny every day. Right. That doesn't work for me. So I think you have to find, especially people might be out there working 12, 14 hour days and in, in the, the being able to meditate and and, you know, get early morning sunlight and, and lift and then take a nap. And it, it's just not possible. Right. So you have to figure out what works for you and your schedule and your lifestyle. I want to bring something up here. I don't want to slam Huberman. He's, you know, he's a smart guy. He's not a clinician no. and he's a researcher. There's a huge difference between the two. So clinicians mm-hmm. are people who actually see people and treat people with things and right. see what's happening. Yes. researchers read research papers and theorize about what may happen and what could be recommended. Like Matthew Walker, great book, Why We Sleep. Love that book. Matthew's a researcher. He's not somebody that you go to with a sleep disorder. Right. Our friend Wendy Troxell is. You have a yeah. sleep problem, you go see Wendy, she's going to help you out. Or Michael Bruce, people like that. They're very different. Yeah, no, in, in things in theory are totally different in practice and the translation of those, a lot of things that you think are really promising or should work on a physiological mechanism don't pan out at all. And so it's totally different taking care of people in real life yeah. versus, you know, in this, in a study or even some of these studies are really small. And some of them, even if they're in very reputable journals, and some of them are even are in animal-based studies, right? And so that once again, translating that over to humans is fraught with failure in, in a lot of things we think are really promising and then just never pan out. Different when you're a clinician. Where I'm going with this is for yourself, you're up at six in the morning and you're in a fluorescent lit OR. Having a researcher tell you these are the five things you should do every day just doesn't make any right. sense. But right. if you go to a clinician, the clinician is going to say, oh yeah, Mike, this is your reality. This right. is your value system, your ambitions. Okay, let's see how we can figure out something that works for that. And I think that's a really big difference that I think a lot of people who listen to podcasts and read stuff in this space don't understand the difference between those two things. No, and you have to take that into account for sure. Yeah. Now we're into like things that bug me. The other thing that bugs me (laughs) is the difference between correlation and causation. Which makes me absolutely berserk, you know, like the blue zone stuff. We're not talking about causation here. We're just talking about observed correlation. I don't want to pick on that, but there's like a ton of that stuff. And well, look at like game changers, right? With you know that book, which I watched, it was great. I I think if people, I would never, if somebody came to me said, I want to be vegan and I can do it, I'd be like, fine, you know, I have no problem. I, I choose not to, but. Um, you know, people will use that as their evidence, right? Like that's not science. You no, know, that's just correlate. You know, it, it, right? It but hey, if that's what works for you and you like it, and you've lost weight and you've seen your exercise improve, great. That's sort of the the thing. Does it work for you? The correlation. Then again, we sort of move into the religious belief section, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like you know Christianity, Buddhism, any of that. Is what I'm talking about is like you know, the, like the diet stuff or the, the statin people. <laughs> stop. Well, yeah, the- or he, yeah. That's big in statins because myopathy, you know, muscle aches and soreness is right. reported at about 4%. And it's much lower than that probably, mm. uh, but it's one of those things, right? You, you take a statin, you kind of worked out hard the next day, you slept on your neck wrong, whatever. We all wake up and have aches and pains. Yeah. And, but yeah, you started a statin. It's gotta be a statin, right? That's where being a clinician gets really tricky because they have to parse out, you know, oh, you did this and this and this, but mm-hmm. what was the causation of whatever you're here for? I don't know, whatever you did, like you ate asparagus tonight and you're in here and your gut hurts. Is that really it? Figuring that stuff out, I think is really something where I give a lot of credit to people who actually parse this out like mm-hmm. one-to-one and 
you look at a lot more of this than I do, but if you look at data curves, it's often a bell curve or it's a distribution of data in some way. And if there's enough data indicating something, okay, we're, we're going to recommend this. But there's yeah. probably a huge amount of data that's like outside of that. It just comes down to a probability thing. And okay. does the person that you're recommending this to fall within that probability? Are there other circumstances here that, that would affect that? And, and how do we parse that? I think human right. biology is so complicated, Mike. I just, it is crazy. Right. It's unbelievably complicated. And there's a tremendous <laughs> yeah. amount of noise, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know, that's the hard part in studying. Everybody's different. And, you know, maybe someday in the future we get there where, you know, you're able to go in and they can look at your DNA and say, this is your diet. This is your exercise. This is how much sleep you need. And, and maybe someday we'll get there. We're not there yet. But maybe that's the future of medicine where everybody has their DNA analyzed and you can know exactly what works best for you. But, you know, right now there's a lot of noise. I mean, you can see that in, you know, I don't want this is such a controversial subject. But when you look at COVID and vaccines, I mean, you know, talk about correlation and causation. I mean, you know, people get vaccines, they have they have a heart attack. Right. You know, uh, you still see that go on. Right. Somebody, you know, the NFL player got hit in the chest. And, you know, had commodio cordis and went into cardiac arrest, which is a known mechanism from trauma. And, you know, there's people out there saying it's the vaccine. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. But, yeah, there's a ton of noise um, in, in biology. My training was as a mechanical engineer. So physical sciences, Ooh. if you take a ball and you hold it out at arm length, I can tell you precisely without any doubt how long it's going to take to hit the floor. Right. <laughs> no right. one's going to debate that. That hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But like when you get into biology, especially human biology, it's just oh, it's it, changing. Even oh in the God. field of anesthesia, I see it every day, right? So yeah. people come in and once again, it's the theoretical to the practical. What What is the practice of anesthesia like in real life? And it's different than what you learn in the textbook. I was, I was very integral in teaching residents for the first uh, nine, 10 years of my career. And, you know, I'd say that there's the the board answer, the theoretical answer and the real world answer. And they're very different. So, you know, you can take somebody to come in and say, how much pain medicine does this person need if they're having a knee replacement? And, you know, they get the same nerve block. They get the same anesthetic. They get the same same surgeon, same type of surgery. And some people have no pain. Some people, it's 10 out of 10. They're taking opiates and painkillers around the clock for weeks. And, you know, you can throw away the people who are chronic pain, let's say, who, you know, you know, are going to have more of a pain requirement or have a history of drug abuse or people that, you know, would probably have higher amounts. But you take people who, you know, no history of abuse, not on opiates, same surgery, same surgeon, same anesthesia. It's all over the map. And there's no predicting it. So it's it's just amazing to me. Every time I see that, I'm like, you know, it's hard to predict. Yeah, exactly. The other things we talked about were um, accidents and yeah. cars. Of course, cars are very, cars are, everyone out there, cars are very, very dangerous. <laughs> 60,000 people a year die in them. <laughs> well, that's funny because I don't, I don't road bike, I'm mountain bike, but I don't road and that's a little bit dangerous, but I, I don't road bike because I'm too afraid to get by a car. I feel like I can control the narrative a little bit on a mountain bike. Let me just tell you about that sport, which I don't do anymore because I was just yeah. bleeding too. Every time I do it, I come home bleeding. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just, I don't need to do this. A good friend of mine crashed his mountain bike, four broken ribs, broken collarbone. What they were telling us at the hospital here in, in Park City is that they have more mountain bike injuries in the summer than they do ski injuries but the amount of yeah. people mountain biking is you know, it's like 10 percent of the amount of people that ski sure. we were at dinner and and the guy's wife was like you realize you've had two major accidents in the last two years and you've yeah. gone out maybe 30 times so that's what an eight percent chance of you ending up in a hostel why are you yeah. doing this <laughs> well it's funny because i I don't do as much. I do probably the least amount of that. I do a little bit, but I ski a lot more than I mountain bike. Um, and I tell I tell my wife that all the time. I'm like, I feel when I ski, I'm in control. I can I can handle about anything. When I'm coming down on the mountain, I like the mountain biking for the climbing, for the fitness. But coming down, I feel like I don't know what's going to happen, right? So yeah, I don't do it as much, but it definitely seems to be the riskiest thing I do. Like I ski, I, I ski race, I ski fast. But mm-hmm. like if I fall down. I'm falling on a surface 
that's soft-ish versus yeah. a rock. Yeah, and it's somewhat <laughs> uniform, right? You know, it's yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the accident thing. Falling is like no good. So we know that what we want to prevent falling is a few things. So we want to have good fast twitch muscles so that if we think we're about to fall, we can protect a leg or whatever hand out there to, to, to stop it. And then most importantly, um, balance and proprioception so that we know where we are in space. Six months ago, my PT had me stand on one leg and close my eyes. I think that was like three seconds. I can now do 20. Are you doing things? I think this is particularly something like after 60. Like I didn't notice this when I was in my 50s, but are you yeah, doing anything I have, like that? I don't do anything planned. Um, you know, I kind of feel I, it's probably a good idea for sure. I don't have any sort of, you know, uh, balance type exercises I do. I, I kind of feel that and, and it's probably maybe not true. I don't know if there's any evidence, but by skiing and biking and doing all these other kind of things. There's, there's not, I can there's tell There's a lot much. of balance and court. Yeah. There, you know, there's a lot of balance and coordination in that, right. To, I mean, you, you kind of take it for granted, you know, living here where yeah. a lot of people can ski really well, but to be able to go down the mountain and, and maintain that balance and do those things, I think probably is a good thing going forward that a lot of people can't do or don't do. Right. You know, you think about just running in a straight line, you're probably not getting right. that. But being on a bike or skiing, or even if it's Nordic skate skiing or something like that, there's a lot of balance and coordination in that. True. And so by yeah. doing that, I feel like maybe I'm checking that box. What I've noticed is that as I get older, m- most of my sense of where I am in space and how mm-hmm. I'm moving is visual versus all the other senses I have in my body. And I was with somebody who was a, a extremely fit athlete and she's uh, she's about 70 she's sort of well known and she was we were talking about balancing she can balance on one leg with her eyes open like for an eternity like closes eyes boom can't do it and how this sort of thing gets one of those things that we can uh, well i know because i've gone from like three seconds to 20 seconds it's humiliating to train Mm -hmm. um i like picking up heavy things they're really it's really fun but like there's something fun about balance training yeah but it, it, it's so much faster because the brain knows like once you like put in like sort of a new circuit there, the mm. brain's like, oh, that's great. That works. Let's we'll hold on sure. to that versus muscle building, which takes just months. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you said, like when you start getting into your 60s and stuff like that, I think you need some degree of strength. But, you know, you don't need to be the big bulky muscles for sure. Right. And developing those new neural connections as far as balance and coordination and those kind of things become, I think, of greater importance for sure. You know, I think when you're still in your forties, maybe in your fifties, you like having the bigger muscles, whatever, it looks good. But I think, yeah, I think that importance shifts as you get older, you know, and even things like, I know I'm not going to be able to do the things I do now or as well as high of a level when I'm 70, but, you know, once again, still staying active is so important, right? Just whether it's brisk walking or hiking or whatever it is that you'd like to do, and I think that's the important thing is what gives you enjoyment. If you're going out and doing something that you absolutely hate, you're just not going to stick with it. That's right. And it goes again to what works for whoever. Right. Maybe you really like dancing. I love dancing. Dancing's awesome. Yeah. And and that's great because you get the balance and the strength and the coordination and all those kind of things. And you know, there's some people like, you know, I have family members who live in Arizona and it's so hot, you know, everything, everybody's in a gym, you know, mm. and here we take it for granted because I'm rarely in a gym. I do, I do some strength stuff in a gym or at home, but we're outside all the time year round. And that's not always possible in other places. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, as we wrap up here, Mike, what gives you the greatest hope out there? You spend a lot of time reading about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing out there that's hopeful? Yeah, I mean, I think just the general trend, right? I, I think this stuff, re- being able to read about this stuff or get information about this 20 years ago, 15, maybe even 10 years ago, was almost impossible, right? Nobody was talking about this. All of the, you know, how do we age more gracefully? How do we maximize our health span? Um, so I think that as we get continued research and more and more great scientists and physicians are taking up interest in this field, I think we're going to get some better answers to some of these questions. Like I said, maybe we get a biomarker someday 
that's, you know, accurate and suggesting what you're doing really is, you know, because you read about this stuff about chronological age and biological age and how accurate is that? I don't know. I don't buy into any of that. Um, so I think it's just the general trend that more and more people are taking an interest in this and talking about it. And I think that as long as you can weed through some of the stuff that's not useful, I think it's it's only going to be a benefit um, in the not taking this kind of uh tertiary care approach, more of a primary care and how do we prevent some of these things from happening? Would you consider moving into a parallel field, leaving the OR with anesthesia and and moving into something like this? Yeah, I, I would, I have a great interest in this. You know, I would, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to make that move right now. Um, but certainly I think in the next four to five years, um, I would like to transition out of clinical medicine a little bit. Um, I still enjoy what I do, but, um, Given that opportunity, I, I think I would probably jump at it for sure. I guess the differences with anesthesiology is that you don't have a great patient relationship. It lasts for about 15 seconds and then they're unconscious yeah. and then your yeah, job is just is keep true. alive. I mean, that is true. It's a short interaction. Um, you know, I've kind of branched out and done more of this acute pain management where you establish a little bit more of a relationship. Um but two, I think, you know, when you've been doing something for a while, I don't want to say you get bored, but it becomes pretty routine. Um, and I find this field a lot more interesting right now and challenging because it's just we weren't trained in any of this in medical school. None of this existed. Um, and I think now it's starting to come, become more important and people are taking a lot greater interest in it. So, yeah, you know, if there was an opportunity in the future, I'd probably I'd probably jump ship a little bit. I think there needs to be more people who are doing that, I guess, is where I'm going with this. That there's yeah. a... The time, the resources, you know, I think that's that's the hard part, right? And, you know, once again, I think we're a system in this country that's very tertiary care based, where the money is really taking care of people who are sick and established disease. And if somehow you shift that focus where, you know, you're able to make a living working with people who want to stave off disease, I think that would be a, a great place to practice. I think that's right. I think it's very hard to put this sort of a burden on an internist or your GP. It's sort of like apples and oranges. It's sort of a different thing. Mike, thanks so much. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I appreciate having you on and we'll be in touch. I'm a huge fan of your wife and what she's doing, Jen Wagner. Yeah, she's, this is a whole, talk about, she, I mean, she made the pivot. She, she's doing something totally different. So I'm proud of her and it's, it's been a big leap for her. Awesome. All right. Have a good day out there. I hope you get some uh, time on the bike. Yeah, sounds good. Take care, man. Bye-bye. We'll talk to you later. That was great. I'm really glad we were to have that conversation with Mike. I think it's really interesting to hear what somebody who's, you know, clearly smart, Stanford-educated medical professional has to say about some of the things that are going on out in the worlds of longevity and wellness and what they're doing and what we can learn from that. We're going to get with Just Try This in just a moment after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. You know, we talk about this a lot about metrics, what matters, biomarkers. The thing is, you can't take actions on things that you don't know about, and what you don't know about can hurt you. I use Inside Tracker, I take their ultimate test four times a year. I look at their biomarkers, I see what's moving from quarter to quarter. So I can see if I've made changes in my program and my diet, is there something that I need to adjust? And their food first, supplement second recommendations are great. I always share the results with my doctor. And if there's something we need to go over, we do that. Get a dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products. This week on Just Try This, what's top of mind for me is fiber. And I've been traveling a lot recently. And one of the things about traveling is it's hard to get enough fiber. It's like airport food, <laughs> not so much. So why do we need fiber? So fiber, it's not just about pooping. Pooping is important and pooping regularly and, you know, having good poop. That's all great. But fiber is also, it's super important for your gut buddies to keep your gut microbiome happy. And getting enough of this stuff can actually be a bit of a project, you know, something that we need to pay attention to. Fibrous foods, things like uh, legumes, chickpeas, lentils, beans, celery, you know, most green vegetables, things like this have a lot of fiber in them. And that keeps your gut really happy. And a happy gut leads to happy brain. Or I can say, if you have an unhappy gut, you're going to have an unhappy brain. 
So this week, let's just focus on eating a little more fiber and figuring out, you know, what foods you like that you can get enough fiber every week. It's super easy. Okay, just try this. So guys, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It is great to have you. I love this village that we've built. I love the way you guys stay in touch with us. And I'm so appreciative of your time and attention every week. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now. And you're listening to this. And that makes me really happy. If there's somebody else out there who you think could use this podcast, give them a shout. And maybe ask them to subscribe, as always. And I know it can be somewhat difficult to do, but you guys can do it. And that is, you can leave us a comment. You can leave us a review, up to a five-star review, I hope. And I know, you know, depending on where you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening on iTunes or Google or Skitcher, you might have to like poke around for a couple minutes to figure out like where to do that and how to do that. But hey, we can do it. We're clever people. And we would really appreciate that. So that'd be great. Um, hey, next week we've got, uh, we're going to be talking about skin and the latest in technology around skincare, skin reju rejuvenation. We have our favorite dermatologist, Dr. Kelly, coming on. So until then, everyone have a wonderful week and we'll see you then. Take care now. Bye.